The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the History of Literature podcast. That ticking clock is the sound of where we are and what we're doing today. That's right. We're finishing up Henry James's Beast in the Jungle. There's a beast, but that's just it, isn't it? This beast in our story has not roared. We're waiting. If you're new to this three-part series, you can go back and listen to the first two episodes if you'd like, or you can skip those and jump right in here because I will give you everything you need. That's all coming up today on The History of Literature. Mm, Quick theme today because we're waiting, and waiting is difficult. What are we waiting for? We've been waiting for it to appear, and so have our main characters. John Marcher has been waiting almost all of his life. He confided in a friend, a brief encounter casually met years ago in Italy, Mae Bartram. For some reason, he confided in her that he had this premonition. Something was going to happen to him, to him alone. Something that had never happened to anyone before. It would be a rare and strange thing, he believed, catastrophic. And he did not know when or where it would happen or what it would be. A special fate just for him. He lived his life that way in apprehension of this thing. It set him apart from everyone else. And May Bartram says... I'll wait with you. I'll watch too. I'll watch for this beast that lies in wait for you. It sets her apart too, that she knows a man like this, that she's the keeper of his secret. The two of them have this strange psychological grip on one another. They're connected through this beast. She becomes very important to John Marcher, and he feels obligated to her in a sense. If she sees some catastrophe happen to him, it could damage her. Who would want to witness that kind of violence or destruction or whatever it is? And if nothing should happen to him, if he's made all this up, well, then she's wasted her life, hasn't she? She's linked her fate to his, and that's somewhat problematic. He doesn't know quite what to think, and yet it's gratifying, too. Her belief in his beast renews his loyalty to the idea. If she's sanctioned it, if she believes in it, well, then it must be good. It must be worthy, as worthy as he's always thought that it is. A couple of twists happen, and I have a twist for you, but let me back up and talk about something that happened to me in real life. So, I was in high school. I guess I was about 16 when all this started. I maybe had a year to go of high school left. I liked girls a lot. They didn't like me quite so much as I liked them, but I suppose everybody feels that way when they're in high school. But I also had this great fear in high school that I would never escape my town. I was in a small town. I was George Bailey in It's a Wonderful Life, stuck there in Bedford Falls. And if I wasn't careful, I believed that that could be me. Maybe I'd go to college, but I'd come right back to where I was. And I knew I didn't really fit in there. And I looked around at the guys who were a few years ahead of me, some of my former idols, some of the 
stars of the high school when I was in grade school, and a lot of them were back now. They had girlfriends who were my age or a little older. Those guys came back. They maybe went to college, but they quit. They moved away for a while, but then they moved back to be close to their girlfriend. And even beyond just leaving town, there was something about a a 16-year-old having a girlfriend that looked kind of rough to me. Those couples got in arguments. There were breakups, dependencies. It looked to me like a bit of a trap. Potential trap or a drain of time and money. And maybe I was afraid to be rejected, to be the guy with no girlfriend because nobody liked me. Or to have one girl like me and then dump me humiliating me in the eyes of the entire town, whatever the reason. One day I mentioned to someone that I was on a five-year plan. A five-year plan. What do you mean, Jack Wilson? Yeah, five-year plan. No serious girlfriend for five years. I explained that it seemed like the best relationships all started at the age of 21 or so anyway, when you knew who you were and where in life you were headed. And it just seemed like the young relationships around me, all doomed, they interfered with that. So why not just avoid all that trouble for five years, focus on school and other activities, become myself, be the best me I could be, be friends with a lot of people, grow, and then figure out where in life to be and who in life to be with. A five-year plan, well... Mentioned this to one kid. He was kind of a chatty kid, and he told people about it. Jack Wilson, have you heard about his five-year plan? What do you think of that? His five-year plan. Jack Wilson's five-year plan. What do you think? And the news spread. And suddenly, a sort of germ germ of an idea that I had, a a half-hearted commitment, became something I was known for. Now... A lot of people probably rolled their eyes, said nothing about it. Yeah, whatever. He says that now. He'll start dating next year and forget all about this five-year plan. Or who cares? (laughs) What a dumb idea. But some people, this really hit home with them. I had grown-ups come and talk to me about it. Hey, Jack, a five-year plan. I heard you're on a five-year plan. Tell me about this five-year plan. I'd talk about it and they'd say, I think that's a fantastic idea. I wish I'd done it. Could have saved myself a lot of trouble. Or sometimes they'd say, are you sure? Because I met my wife when I was 19 and look at us. We're pretty happily married. Maybe you should have it. How about a series of one-year renewable plans? (laughs) Was suggested to me. And some people would announce angrily that they were not on a five-year plan. They were in love and it was the best thing in their lives. It was a strange situation. I had made this this thing up, this plan, this way to live, this artificial path for myself, something I needed to do, uh, a line I needed to draw in the sand, a box I needed to put myself in, something. I don't know how to describe it, some way of making sure that I... I it was like Odysseus putting wax in his ears. Or he wanted to hear it, lashing himself to the mast and putting wax in the ears of his crew. Something to get me through those five years with all those sirens singing. 
a five-year plan. Oh, I would say when someone tried to set me up with their cousin or their niece or some girl from some other school, oh, I'm happy to meet her and be friends with her. But I should tell you that I'm, I'm, I'm four months into my five-year plan. It was a way of avoiding commitment, of avoiding potential rejection. I see all that now, and I probably saw it then. It was a way of playing it safe. But it also had some good reasons behind it, like those, those kids who say they're going to go to community college for two years and then transfer. It's hard to argue with the economics of that. It makes a lot of sense. Might not be for everyone, but it makes sense. This made sense too. Five years of no arguments, no lovers' quarrels, no discoveries of cheating or accusations, no hurting someone else, no being hurt. No fear that I had committed to the wrong person or the wrong person had committed to me. And so I stuck to it. But I always knew that I wasn't locked into it or anything. I could change my mind at any time. It was mine as long as it was useful. But then something changed, too. I saw how important my five-year plan had become to certain people. There was one kid in particular who could not stop talking about it. He wanted to know how I came up with the idea and if I still believed in it and if he should undertake such a thing. He was a couple of years younger than me. But we were working together one summer and we would spend hours at work, long afternoon hours, sitting on overturned white pails, buckets, in that popcorn wagon at the carnival. Long afternoons talking about the five-year plan. I began to feel like the plan, my plan, my path, was as important to him to watch as it was for me to live. It was flattering. I felt special. He'd tell me I was special. Nobody else is doing this. He would say, I can't believe you. I can't believe you came up with this. Are you going to do it? Are you really going to do it? was clear he felt lucky to know me, and I felt like I'd be letting him down if I broke my five-year plan. If I started dating someone seriously, how would I face him after telling him all about the wonders of the five-year plan? His attention to the plan, his almost fanatical devotion to it, breathed life into the idea of the plan. It wasn't just a, a stray comment I had made, a thought I had had, a thought experiment. It was something with meaning and purpose. He was shaping his life around me and my five-year plan. Now, I told you that I had two twists in the story, The Beast in the Jungle, to discuss, and then a twist of my own to provide... And we're going to hear that great story, The Majestic Conclusion. The beast in the jungle is waiting to pounce. And pounce it shall. Let's take a break first. Hey, grown-ups. The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet 
podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the cat in the hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. And we are back. I turned off that alarm, by the way, that we were using in the previous episodes. We're going to go all night if we have to on this one. To finish up the story. So let's recap. May Bartram had been a, has been a great friend to John Marcher when we pick up our story. She's been an incredible confidant and a close companion for him. She has held his secret of this beast that's lying in wait for him. She doesn't think it's crazy. She doesn't think he's crazy. She even sort of thinks her own life has taken on an extra significance because she knows him. It's maybe the only significance her life has, he fears. She's kept his secret, and she's known a great man, someone unusual. Remember my young friend in that small town? There were shades of this, too. He was as trapped as I was. But clearly I was someone who was approaching life a little bit differently. The idea that someone was living according to some plan, someone was on a different path, excited him. So let's pick up our story. We'll do chapter four. Then take a break and then finish with the final two chapters. Listeners, I'm glad you're here. I don't think I can face this story alone. Chapter 4 Then it was that one afternoon, while the spring of the year was young and new, she met all in her own way his frankest betrayal of these alarms. He had gone in late to see her. But evening hadn't settled, and she was presented to him in that long, fresh light of waning April days, which affects us often with a sadness sharper than the grayest hours of autumn. The week had been warm, the spring was supposed to have begun early, and May Bartram sat, for the first time in the year, without a fire. A fact that, to Marcher's sense, gave the scene of which she formed part a smooth and ultimate look an air of knowing, in its immaculate order and cold, meaningless cheer, that it would never see a fire again. Her own aspect, he could scarce have said why, intensified this note. Almost as white as wax, with the marks and signs in her face as numerous and as fine as if they had been etched by a needle, with soft white draperies relieved by a faded green scarf, on the delicate tone of which the years had further refined. She was the picture of a serene and exquisite but impenetrable sphinx, whose head, or indeed all whose person, might have been powdered with silver. She was a sphinx, yet with her white petals and green fronds, she might have been a lily, too. Only an artificial lily, 
wonderfully imitated and constantly kept, without dust or stain, though not exempt from a slight droop and a complexity of faint creases under some clear glass bell. The perfection of household care, of high polish and finish, always reigned in her rooms, but now they looked most as if everything had been wound up, tucked in, put away, so that she might sit with folded hands and with nothing more to do. She was out of it, to Marcher's vision. Her work was over. She communicated with him as across some gulf or from some island of rest that she had already reached, and it made him feel strangely abandoned. Was it, or rather wasn't it, that if for so long she had been watching with him, the answer to their question must have swum into her ken and taken on its name, so that her occupation was verily gone? He had as much as charged her with this in saying to her, many months before, that she even then knew something she was keeping from him. It was a point he had never since ventured to press, vaguely fearing, as he did, that it might become a difference, perhaps a disagreement, between them. He had in this later time turned nervous, which was what he in all the other years had never been. And the oddity was that his nervousness should have waited till he had begun to doubt, should have held off so long as he was sure. There was something, it seemed to him, that the wrong word would bring down on his head, something that would so at least ease off his tension. But he wanted not to speak the wrong word, that would make everything ugly. He wanted the knowledge he lacked to drop on him, if drop it could, by its own august weight. If she was to forsake him, it was surely for her to take leave. This was why he didn't directly ask her again what she knew, but it was also why, approaching the matter from another side, he said to her in the course of his visit, What do you regard as the very worst that at this time of day can happen to me? He had asked her that in the past often enough. They had, with the odd, irregular rhythm of their intensities and avoidances, exchanged ideas about it, and then had seen the ideas washed away by cool intervals, washed like figures traced in sea-sand. It had ever been the mark of their talk that the oldest illusions in it required but a little dismissal and reaction to come out again, sounding for the hour as new. She could thus at present meet his enquiry quite freshly and patiently. Oh yes, I've repeatedly thought, only it always seemed to me of old that I couldn't quite make up my mind. I thought of dreadful things, between which it was difficult to choose, and so must you have done. Rather, I feel now as if I had scarce done anything else. I appear to myself to have spent my life in thinking of nothing but dreadful things. A great many of them I've at different times named to you, but there were others I couldn't name. They were too, too dreadful. Too, too dreadful, some of them. She looked at him a minute, and there came to him as he met it an inconsequent sense that her eyes, when one got their full clearness, were still as beautiful as they had been in youth, only beautiful with a strange, cold light, a light that somehow was a part of the effect, if it wasn't rather a part of the cause, 
of the pale hard sweetness of the season and the hour. And yet, she said at last, there are horrors we've mentioned. It deepened the strangeness to see her, as such a figure in such a picture, talk of horrors. But she was to do in a few minutes something stranger yet, though even of this he was to take the full measure but afterwards. And the note of it already trembled. It was, for the matter of that, one of the signs that her eyes were having again the high flicker of their prime. He had to admit, however, what she said. Oh, yes. There were times when we did go far. He caught himself in the act of speaking as if it were all over. Well, he wished it were, and the consummation depended for him clearly more and more on his friend. But she had now a soft smile. Oh, far. It was oddly ironic. Do you mean you're prepared to go further? She was frail and ancient and charming as she continued to look at him, yet it was rather as if she had lost the thread. Do you consider that we went far? Why, I thought at the point you were just making that we had looked most things in the face. Including each other? She still smiled. But you're quite right. We've had together great imaginations, often great fears, but some of them have been unspoken. Then the worst. We haven't faced that. I could face it, I believe, if I knew what you think it. I feel, he explained, as if I had lost my power to conceive such things. And he wondered if he looked as blank as he sounded. It's spent. Then why do you assume, she asked, that mine isn't? Because you've given me signs to the contrary. It isn't a question for you of conceiving, imagining, comparing. It isn't a question now of choosing. At last he came out with it. You know something I don't. You've shown me that before. These last words had affected her, he made out in a moment, exceedingly, and she spoke with firmness. I've shown you, my dear, nothing. He shook his head. You can't hide it. Oh, oh. May Bartram sounded over what she couldn't hide. It was almost a smothered groan. You admitted it months ago when I spoke of it to you as of something you were afraid I should find out. Your answer was that I couldn't, that I wouldn't, and I don't pretend I have. But you had something therefore in mind, and I see now how it must have been, how it still is, the possibility that of all possibilities, has settled itself for you as the worst. This, he went on, is why I appeal to you. I'm only afraid of ignorance today. I'm not afraid of knowledge. And then, as for a while, she said nothing. What makes me sure is that I see in your face and feel here in this air and amid these appearances that you're out of it. You're done. You've had your experience. You leave me to my fate. Well, she listened, motionless and white in her chair, as on a decision to be made, so that her manner was fairly an avowal, though still, with a small, fine inner stiffness, an imperfect surrender. It 
would be the worst, she finally let herself say. I mean, the thing I've never said. It hushed him a moment. More monstrous than all the monstrosities we've named. More monstrous. Isn't that what you sufficiently express? She asked, in calling it the worst. Marcher thought. Assuredly, if you mean, as I do, something that includes all the loss and all the shame that are thinkable. It would, if it should happen, said May Bartram. What we're speaking of, remember, is only my idea. It's your belief, Marcher returned. That's enough for me. I feel your beliefs are right. Therefore, if, having this one, you give me no more light on it, you abandon me. No, no, she repeated. I'm with you, don't you see? Still. And as to make it more vivid to him, she rose from her chair, a movement she seldom risked in these days, and showed herself, all draped and all soft, in her fairness and slimness. I haven't forsaken you. It was really, in its effort against weakness, a generous assurance, and had the success of the impulse not, happily, been great, it would have touched him to pain more than to pleasure. But the cold charm in her eyes had spread, as she hovered before him, to all the rest of her person, so that it was, for the minute, almost a recovery of youth. He couldn't pity her for that, he could only take her as she showed, as capable even yet of helping him. It was as if, at the same time, her light might at any instant go out, wherefore he must make the most of it. There passed before him with intensity the three or four things he wanted most to know, but the question that came of itself to his lips really covered the others. Then tell me if I shall consciously suffer. She promptly shook her head. Never. It confirmed the authority he imputed to her, and it produced on him an extraordinary effect. Well, what's better than that? Do you call that the worst? You think nothing is better? She asked. She seemed to mean something so special that he again sharply wondered, though still with the dawn of a prospect of relief. Why not, if one doesn't know? After which, as their eyes over his question met in silence, the dawn deepened, and something to his purpose came prodigiously out of her very face. His own, as he took it in, suddenly flushed to the forehead, and he gasped with the force of a perception to which, on the instant, everything fitted. The sound of his gasp filled the air. Then he became articulate. I see, if I don't suffer. In her own look, however, was doubt. You see what? Why, what you mean? What you've always meant? She again shook her head. What I mean isn't what I've always meant. It's different. It's something new? She hung back from it a little. Something new. It's not what you think. I see what you think. His divination drew breath then. Only her correction might be wrong. 
It isn't that I am a blockhead, he asked between faintness and grimness. It isn't that it's all a mistake. A mistake? She pityingly echoed. That possibility for her, he saw, would be monstrous, and if she guaranteed him the immunity from pain, it would accordingly not be what she had in mind. Oh no, she declared, it's nothing of that sort. You've been right. Yet he couldn't help asking himself if she weren't, thus pressed, speaking but to save him. It seemed to him he should be most in a hole if his history should prove all a platitude. Are you telling me the truth, so that I shan't have been a bigger idiot than I can bear to know? I haven't lived with a vain imagination in the most besotted illusion. I haven't waited but to see the door shut in my face. She shook her head again. However the case stands, that isn't the truth. Whatever the reality, it is a reality. The door isn't shut. The door's open, said May Bartram. Then something's to come. She waited once again, always with her cold, sweet eyes on him. It's never too late. She had, with her gliding step, diminished the distance between them, and she stood nearer to him, close to him, a minute, as if still charged with the unspoken. Her movement might have been for some finer emphasis of what she was at once hesitating and deciding to say. He had been standing by the chimney piece, fireless and sparely adorned, a small perfect old French clock and two morsels of rosy Dresden constituting all its furniture. And her hand grasped the shelf while she kept him waiting, grasped it a little as for support and encouragement. She only kept him waiting, however, that is, he only waited. It had become suddenly, from her movement and attitude, beautiful and vivid to him that she had something more to give him. Her wasted face delicately shone with it. It glittered, almost as with the white luster of silver in her expression. She was right, incontestably, for what he saw in her face was the truth, and strangely, without consequence, while their talk of it as dreadful was still in the air, she appeared to present it as inordinately soft. This prompting bewilderment made him but gape the more gratefully for her revelation, so that they continued for some minutes silent, her face shining at him, her contact imponderably pressing, and his stare all kind but all expectant. The end, nonetheless, was that what he had expected failed to come to him. Something else took place instead, which seemed to consist at first in the mere closing of her eyes. She gave way at the same instant to a slow, fine shudder, and though he remained staring, though he stared in fact but the harder, turned off and regained her chair. It was the end of what she had been intending but it left him thinking only of that. Well, you don't say. She had touched in her passage a bell near the chimney and had sunk back, strangely pale. I'm afraid I'm too ill. Too ill to tell me? 
It sprang up sharp to him and almost to his lips, the fear that she might die without giving him light. He checked himself in time from so expressing his question, but she answered as if she had heard the words. Don't you know? Now? Now? She had spoken as if some difference had been made within the moment, but her maid, quickly obedient to her bell, was already with them. I know nothing. And he was afterwards to say to himself that he must have spoken with odious impatience. Such an impatience as to show that, supremely disconcerted, he washed his hands of the whole question. Oh, said May Bartram. Are you in pain? he asked as the woman went to her. No, said May Bartram. Her maid, who had put an arm round her as if to take her to her room, fixed on him eyes that appealingly contradicted her, in spite of which, however, he showed once more his mystification. What then has happened? She was once more with her companion's help on her feet, and, feeling withdrawal imposed on him, he had blankly found his hat and gloves and had reached the door. Yet he waited for her answer. What was to? she said. Hmm. That's the end of chapter four. The diction is a little difficult at the end, so I'll try to make sure you followed that. What then has happened? Marcher asks. May Bartram? What was to? she says, meaning what was to have happened. What on earth does she mean? The great fate, the beast... Has it sprung? It's unleashed itself? It's attacked, but he missed it? What on earth does she... Somehow, she's now imbued with the kind of wisdom and clarity that arises in those on the verge of death. What vision has she seen? We'll have the rest of the story after this. We are back. We're going to hear the end of the beast in the jungle now. She's dying. He will lose her, and what will that mean for him? Will he ever know her secret vision of his beast? What will he do without the one person who knows his secret and who's agreed to share it with him? Or is her looming death the beast? That would be a twist. Maybe not an extraordinary fate, something that's never happened to anyone before. But maybe that's what's been waiting for him all along. Let's hear the rest. Chapter 5 He came back the next day, but she was then unable to see him, and as it was literally the first time this had occurred in the long stretch of their acquaintance, he turned away, defeated and sore, almost angry, were feeling, at least, that such a break in their custom was really the beginning of the end, and wandered alone with his thoughts, especially with the one he was least able to keep down. She was dying, and he would lose her. She was dying, and his life would end. He stopped in the park, into which he had passed, and stared before him at his recurrent doubt. Away from her, the doubt pressed again. In her presence, he had believed her. But as he felt his forlornness, he threw himself into the explanation that, 
nearest at hand, had most of a miserable warmth for him, and least of a cold torment. She had deceived him to save him, to put him off with something in which he should be able to rest. What could the thing that was to happen to him be, after all, but just this thing that had begun to happen? Her dying, her death, his consequent solitude, that was what he had figured as the beast in the jungle. That was what had been in the lap of the gods. He had had her word for it as he left her. What else on earth could she have meant? It wasn't a thing of a monstrous order, not a fate rare and distinguished, not a stroke of fortune that overwhelmed and immortalized. It had only the stamp of the common doom. But poor Marcher at this hour judged the common doom sufficient. It would serve his turn, and even as the consummation of infinite waiting, he would bend his pride to accept it. He sat down on a bench in the twilight. He hadn't been a fool. Something had been, as she had said, to come. Before he rose, indeed, it had quite struck him that the final fact really matched with the long avenue through which he had had to reach it. As sharing his suspense and as giving herself all, giving her life, to bring it to an end, she had come with him every step of the way. He had lived by her aid, and to leave her behind would be cruelly, damnably, to miss her. What could be more overwhelming than that? Well, he was to know within the week, for though she kept him a while at bay, left him restless and wretched during a series of days on each of which he asked about her only again to have to turn away, she ended his trial by receiving him where she had always received him. Yet she had been brought out at some hazard into the presence of so many of the things that were, consciously, vainly, half their past, and there was scant service left in the gentleness of her mere desire, all too visible, to check his obsession and wind up his long trouble. That was clearly what she wanted, the one thing more for her own peace, while she could still put out her hand. He was so affected by her state that, once seated by her chair, he was moved to let everything go. It was she herself, therefore, who brought him back, took up again before she dismissed him, her last word of the other time. She showed how she wished to leave their business in order. I'm not sure you understood. You've nothing to wait for more. It has come. Oh, how he looked at her. Really? Really? The thing that, as you said, was to? The thing that we began in our youth to watch for. Face to face with her once more, he believed her. It was a claim to which he had so abjectly little to oppose. You mean that it has come as a positive, definite occurrence, with a name and a date? Positive. Definite. I don't know about the name, but oh, with a date. He found himself again too helplessly at sea. But come in the night, come and pass me by. May Bartram had her strange, faint smile. Oh no, it hasn't passed you by. But if I haven't been aware of it and it hasn't touched me. Ah, you're not being aware of it. 
and she seemed to hesitate an instant to deal with this. Your not being aware of it is the strangeness in the strangeness. It's the wonder of the wonder. She spoke as with the softness almost of a sick child, yet now at last, at the end of all, with the perfect straightness of a sibyl. She visibly knew that she knew, and the effect on him was of something coordinate in its high character with the law that had ruled him. It was the true voice of the law, so on her lips would the law itself have sounded. It has touched you, she went on. It has done its office. It has made you all its own. So utterly without my knowing it? So utterly without your knowing it. His hand, as he leaned to her, was on the arm of her chair, and, dimly smiling always now, she placed her own on it. It's enough if I know it. Oh! He confusedly breathed, as she herself of late so often had done. What I long ago said is true. You'll never know now, and I think you ought to be content. You've had it said May Bartram. But had what? Why, what was to have marked you out? The proof of your law. It has acted. I'm too glad, she then bravely added, to have been able to see what it's not. He continued to attach his eyes to her, and with the sense that it was all beyond him, and that she was too, he would still have sharply challenged her Hadn't he so felt it an abuse of her weakness to do more than take devoutly what she gave him, take it hushed as to a revelation? If he did speak, it was out of the foreknowledge of his loneliness to come. If you're glad of what it's not, it might then have been worse? She turned her eyes away. She looked straight before her, with which, after a moment, Well, you know our fears. He wondered. It's something then we never feared? On this slowly she turned to him. Did we ever dream, with all our dreams, that we should sit and talk of it thus? He tried for a little to make out that they had, but it was as if their dreams numberless enough, were in solution in some thick, cold mist through which thought lost itself. It might have been that we couldn't talk. Well, she did her best for him. Not from this side. This, you see, she said, is the other side. I think, poor Marcher returned, that all sides are the same to me. Then, however, as she gently shook her head in correction, We mightn't, as it were, have got across to where we are. No, we're here, she made her weak emphasis. And much good does it do us, was her friend's frank comment. It does us the good it can. It does us the good that it isn't here. It's past. It's behind said May Bartram, before... But her voice dropped. He had got up, 
not to tire her, but it was hard to combat his yearning. She, after all, told him nothing but that his light had failed, which he knew well enough without her. Before, he blankly echoed. Before, you see, it was always to come. That kept it present. Oh, I don't care what comes now. Besides, Marcher added, it seems to me I liked it better present, as you say, than I can like it absent with your absence. Oh, mine. And her pale hands made light of it. With the absence of everything. He had a dreadful sense of standing there before her, for, so far as anything but this proved, this bottomless drop was concerned, the last time of their life. It rested on him with a weight he felt he could scarce bear, and this weight it apparently was that still pressed out what remained in him of speakable protest. I believe you, but I can't begin to pretend I understand. Nothing, for me, is past, nothing will pass, till I pass myself, which I pray my stars may be as soon as possible. Say, however, he added, that I've eaten my cake, as you contend, to the last crumb. How can the thing I've never felt at all be the thing I was marked out to feel? She met him perhaps less directly, but she met him unperturbed. You take your feelings for granted. You were to suffer your fate. That was not necessarily to know it. How in the world, when what is such knowledge but suffering? She looked up at him a while in silence. No, you don't understand. I suffer said John Marcher. Don't, don't. How can I help at least that? Don't, May Bartram repeated. She spoke it in a tone so special, in spite of her weakness, that he stared an instant, stared as if some light hitherto hidden had shimmered across his vision. Darkness again closed over it, but the gleam had already become for him an idea. Because I haven't the right? Don't know when you needn't, she mercifully urged. You needn't, for we shouldn't. Shouldn't, if he could but know what she meant. No, it's too much. Too much, he still asked, but with a mystification that was the next moment of a sudden to give way. Her words, if they meant something, affected him in this light, the light also of her wasted face, as meaning all, and the sense of what knowledge had been for herself came over him with a rush, which broke through into a question. Is it of that, then, that you're dying? She but watched him, gravely at first, as to see, with this, where he was, and she might have seen something or feared something that moved her sympathy. I would live for you still, if I could. Her eyes closed for a little, as if, withdrawn into herself, she were for a last time trying. But I can't, she said, as she raised them again, to take leave of him. 
She couldn't, indeed, as but too promptly and sharply appeared, and he had no vision of her after this that was anything but darkness and doom. They had parted forever in that strange talk. Access to her chamber of pain, rigidly guarded, was almost wholly forbidden him. He was feeling now, moreover, in the face of doctors, nurses, the two or three relatives attracted, doubtless by the presumption of what she had to leave, how few were the rights, as they were called in such cases, that he had to put forward, and how odd it might even seem that their intimacy shouldn't have given him more of them. The stupidest fourth cousin had more, even though she had been nothing in such a person's life. She had been a feature of features in his, for what else was it to have been so indispensable? Strange beyond saying were the ways of existence, baffling for him the anomaly of his lack, as he felt it to be, of producible claim. A woman might have been, as it were, everything to him, and it might yet present him in no connection that anyone seemed held to recognize. If this was the case in these closing weeks, it was the case more sharply on the occasion of the last offices rendered in that great grey London cemetery to what had been mortal, to what had been precious in his friend. The concourse at her grave was not numerous, but he saw himself treated as scarce more nearly concerned with it than if there had been a thousand others. He was, in short, from this moment, face to face with the fact that he was to profit extraordinarily little by the interest May Bartram had taken in him. He couldn't quite have said what he expected, but he hadn't surely expected this approach to a double privation. Not only had her interest failed him, but he seemed to feel himself unattended, and for a reason he couldn't seize, by the distinction, the dignity, the propriety, if nothing else, of the man markedly bereaved, as if there still failed some sign or proof of it, and as if nonetheless his character could never be affirmed, nor the deficiency ever made up. There were moments as the weeks went by when he would have liked, by some almost aggressive act, to take his stand on the intimacy of his loss, in order that it might be questioned, and his retort to the relief of his spirit so recorded, but the moments of an irritation more helpless followed fast on these, the moments during which, turning things over with a good conscience but with a bare horizon, he found himself wondering if he oughtn't to have begun, so to speak, further back. He found himself wondering indeed at many things, and this last speculation had others to keep it company. What could he have done, after all, in her lifetime, without giving them both, as it were, away? He couldn't have made known she was watching him, for that would have published the superstition of the beast. This was what closed his mouth now, now that the jungle had been thrashed to vacancy, and that the beast had stolen away. It sounded too foolish and too flat, the difference for him in this particular. The extinction in his life of the element of suspense was such as in fact to surprise him. He could scarce have said what the effect resembled, the abrupt cessation, the positive prohibition of music, perhaps, more than anything else, in some place all adjusted and all accustomed to sonority, 
into attention. If he could at any rate have conceived lifting the veil from his image at some moment of the past, what had he done, after all, if not lift it to her? So to do this today, to talk to people at large of the jungle cleared and confide to them that he now felt it as safe, would have been not only to see them listen as to a good wife's tale, but really to hear himself tell one. What it presently came to, in truth, was that poor Marcher waded through his beaten grass, where no life stirred, where no breath sounded, where no evil eye seemed to gleam from a possible lair, very much as if vaguely looking for the beast, and still more as if acutely missing it. He walked about in an existence that had grown strangely more spacious, and, stopping fitfully in places where the undergrowth of life struck him as closer, asked himself yearningly, wondered secretly and sorely, if it would have lurked here or there. It would have, at all events, sprung. What was at least complete was his belief in the truth itself of the assurance given him. The change from his old sense to his new was absolute and final. What was to happen had so absolutely and finally happened that he was as little able to know a fear for his future as to know a hope. So absent, in short, was any question of anything still to come. He was to live entirely with the other question, that of his unidentified past, that of his having to see his fortune impenetrably muffled and masked. The torment of this vision became then his occupation. He couldn't perhaps have consented to live but for the possibility of guessing. She had told him, his friend, not to guess. She had forbidden him, so far as he might, to know. And she had even, in a sort, denied the power in him to learn, which were so many things, precisely to deprive him of rest. It wasn't that he wanted, he argued, for fairness, that anything past and done should repeat itself. It was only that he shouldn't, as an anticlimax, have been taken sleeping so sound as not to be able to win back, by an effort of thought, the lost stuff of consciousness. He declared to himself at moments that he would either win it back or have done with consciousness forever. He made this idea his one motive, in fine, made it so much his passion that none other, to compare with it, seemed ever to have touched him. The lost stuff of consciousness became thus for him as a strayed or stolen child to an unappeasable father. He hunted it up and down, very much as if he were knocking at doors and inquiring of the police. This was the spirit in which, inevitably, he set himself to travel. He started on a journey that was to be as long as he could make it. It danced before him that, as the other side of the globe couldn't possibly have less to say to him, it might, by a possibility of suggestion, have more. Before he quitted London, however, he made a pilgrimage to May Bartram's grave took his way to it through the endless avenues of the grim suburban necropolis, sought it out in the wilderness of tombs, and, though he had come but for the renewal of the act of farewell, found himself, when he had at last stood by it, 
beguiled into long intensities. He stood for an hour, powerless to turn away, and yet powerless to penetrate the darkness of death, fixing with his eyes her inscribed name and date, beating his forehead against the fact of the secret they kept, drawing his breath while he waited, as if some sense would, in pity of him, rise from the stones. He kneeled on the stones, however, in vain, they kept what they concealed, and if the face of the tomb did become a face for him, it was because her two names became a pair of eyes that didn't know him. He gave them a last long look, but no palest light broke. Chapter 6 He stayed away after this for a year. He visited the depths of Asia, spending himself on scenes of romantic interest, of superlative sanctity. But what was present to him everywhere was that for a man who had known what he had known, the world was vulgar and vain. The state of mind in which he had lived for so many years shone out to him in reflection as a light that colored and refined, a light beside which the glow of the East was garish, cheap, and thin. The terrible truth was that he had lost, with everything else, a distinction as well. The things he saw couldn't help being common when he had become common to look at them. He was simply now one of them himself. He was in the dust, without a peg for the sense of difference, and there were hours when, before the temples of gods and the sepulchres of kings, his spirit turned for nobleness and association to the barely discriminated slab in the London suburb. That had become for him, and more intensely with time and distance, his one witness of a past glory. It was all that was left to him for proof or pride, yet the past glories of pharaohs were nothing to him as he thought of it. Small wonder, then, that he came back to it on the morrow of his return. He was drawn there this time as irresistibly as the other, yet with a confidence almost that was doubtless the effect of the many months that had elapsed. He had lived, in spite of himself, into his change of feeling, and in wandering over the earth had wandered, as might be said, from the circumference to the center of his desert. He had settled to his safety and accepted perforce his extinction, figuring to himself with some color in the likeness of certain little old men he remembered to have seen, of whom, all meager and wizened as they might look, it was related that they had in their time fought twenty duels or been loved by ten princesses. They indeed had been wondrous for others, while he was but wondrous for himself, which, however, was exactly the cause of his haste to renew the wonder by getting back, as he might put it, into his own presence. That had quickened his steps and checked his delay. If his visit was prompt, it was because he had been separated so long from the part of himself that alone he now valued. It's accordingly not false to say that he reached his goal with a certain elation and stood there again with a certain assurance. The creature beneath the sod knew of his rare experience, so that, strangely now, the place had lost for him its mere blankness of expression. It met him in mildness, 
not as before in mockery. It wore for him the air of conscious greeting that we find, after absence, in things that have closely belonged to us, and which seem to confess of themselves to the connection. The plot of ground, the graven tablet, the tended flowers affected him so as belonging to him that he resembled for the hour a contented landlord reviewing a piece of property. Whatever had happened, well, had happened. He had not come back this time with the vanity of that question, his former worrying, what, what, now practically so spent. Yet he would nonetheless never again so cut himself off from the spot. He would come back to it every month, for if he did nothing else by its aid, he at least held up his head. It thus grew for him in the oddest way, a positive resource. He carried out his idea of periodical returns, which took their place at last among the most inveterate of his habits. What it all amounted to, oddly enough, was that in his finally so simplified world, this garden of death gave him the few square feet of earth on which he could still most live. It was as if, being nothing anywhere else for anyone, nothing even for himself, he were just everything here. And if not for a crowd of witnesses, or indeed for any witness but John Marcher, then by clear right of the register, that he could scan like an open page. The open page was the tomb of his friend. And there were the facts of the past, there the truth of his life, there the backward reaches in which he could lose himself. He did this from time to time with such effect that he seemed to wander through the old years with his hand in the arm of a companion who was, in the most extraordinary manner, his other his younger self, and to wander, which was more extraordinary yet, round and round a third presence, not wandering she, but stationary, still, whose eyes, turning with his revolution, never ceased to follow him, and whose seat was his point, so to speak, of orientation. Thus, in short, he settled to live, feeding all on the sense that he once had lived, and dependent on it not alone for a support, but for an identity. It sufficed him in its way for months, and the year elapsed. It would doubtless even have carried him further, but for an accident, superficially slight, which moved him, quite in another direction, with a force beyond any of his impressions of Egypt or of India. It was a thing of the merest chance, the turn, as he afterwards felt, of a hair, though he was indeed to live to believe that if light hadn't come to him in this particular fashion, it would still have come in another. He was to live to believe this, I say, though he was not to live. I may not less definitely mention to do much else. We allow him at any rate the benefit of the conviction, struggling up for him at the end, that whatever might have happened or not happened, he would have come round of himself to the light. The incident of an autumn day had put the match to the train laid from of old by his misery. With the light before him, he knew that even of late his ache had only been smothered. It was strangely drugged, but it throbbed. At the touch, it began to bleed. And the touch, 
in the event was the face of a fellow mortal. This face, one gray afternoon when the leaves were thick in the alleys, looked into Marcher's own at the cemetery with an expression like the cut of a blade. He felt it, that is, so deep down that he winced at the steady thrust. The person who so mutely assaulted him was a figure he had noticed on reaching his own goal, absorbed by a grave a short distance away, a grave apparently fresh, so that the emotion of the visitor would probably match it for frankness. This fact alone forbade further attention, though during the time he stayed he remained vaguely conscious of his neighbor, a middle-aged man apparently in mourning, whose bowed back among the clustered monuments and mortuary yews was constantly presented. Marcher's theory that these were elements in contact with which he himself revived had suffered on this occasion, it may be granted, a marked and excessive check. The autumn day was dire for him as none had recently been, and he rested with a heaviness he had not yet known on the low stone table that bore May Bartram's name. He rested without power to move, as if some spring in him, some spell vouchsafed, had suddenly been broken forever. If he could have done that moment as he wanted, he would simply have stretched himself on the slab that was ready to take him, treating it as a place prepared to receive his last sleep. What in all the wide world had he now to keep awake for? He stared before him with the question, and it was then that, as one of the cemetery walks passed near him, he caught the shock of the face. His neighbor at the other grave had withdrawn, as he himself, with force enough in him, would have done by now, and was advancing along the path on his way to one of the gates. This brought him close, and his pace was slow, so that, and all the more as there was a kind of hunger in his look, the two men were for a minute directly confronted. Marcher knew him at once for one of the deeply stricken, a perception so sharp that nothing else in the picture comparatively lived, neither his dress, his age, nor his presumable character and class. Nothing lived but the deep ravage of the features that he showed. He showed them. That was the point. He was moved, as he passed, by some impulse that was either a signal for sympathy or, more possibly, a challenge to an opposed sorrow. He might already have been aware of our friend, might at some previous hour have noticed in him the smooth habit of the scene with which the state of his own senses so scantly consorted, and might thereby have been stirred as by an overt discord. What Marcher was at all events conscious of was in the first place that the image of scarred passion presented to him was conscious, too, of something that profaned the air, and in the second, that roused, startled, shocked, he was yet the next moment looking after it, as it went with envy. The most extraordinary thing that had happened to him, though he had given that name to other matters as well, took place, after his immediate vague stare, as a consequence of this impression. The stranger passed, but the raw glare of his grief remained. 
making our friend wonder in pity what wrong, what wound it expressed, what injury not to be healed. What had the man had to make him by the loss of it so bleed and yet live? Something, and this reached him with a pang, that he, John Marcher, hadn't the proof of which was precisely John Marcher's arid end. No passion had ever touched him, for this was what passion meant. He had survived and maundered and pined, but where had been his deep ravage? The extraordinary thing we speak of was the sudden rush of the result of this question, the sight that had just met his eyes named to him as in letters of quick flame, something he had utterly, insanely missed. And what he had missed made these things a train of fire, made them mark themselves in an anguish of inward throbs. He had seen outside of his life, not learned it within, the way a woman was mourned when she had been loved for herself. Such was the force of his conviction of the meaning of the stranger's face, which still flared for him as a smoky torch. It hadn't come to him, the knowledge, on the wings of experience. It had brushed him, jostled him, upset him, with the disrespect of chance, the insolence of accident. Now that the illumination had begun, however, it blazed to the zenith, and what he presently stood there gazing at was the sounded void of his life. He gazed, he drew breath in pain, he turned in his dismay, and, turning, he had before him in sharper incision than ever the open page of his story. The name on the table smote him as the passage of his neighbor had done, and what it said to him, full in the face, was that she was what he had missed. This was the awful thought, the answer to all the past, the vision at the dread clearness of which he turned as cold as the stone beneath him. Everything fell together, confessed, explained, overwhelmed, leaving him most of all stupefied at the blindness he had cherished. The fate he had been marked for he had met with a vengeance. He had emptied the cup to the lees. He had been the man of his time, the man, to whom nothing on earth was to have happened. That was the rare stroke. That was his visitation. So he saw it, as we say, in pale horror, while the pieces fitted and fitted. So she had seen it while he didn't, and so she served at this hour to drive the truth home. It was the truth vivid and monstrous that all the while he had waited, the wait was itself his portion. This the companion of his vigil had at a given moment made out, and she had then offered him the chance to baffle his doom. One's doom, however, was never baffled, and on the day she told him his own had come down, she had seen him but stupidly stare at the escape she offered him. The escape would have been to love her. Then, then he would have lived. She had lived. Who could say now with what passion, since she had loved him for himself, whereas he had never thought of her? Ah, how it hugely glared at him, 
but in the chill of his egotism and the light of her use. Her spoken words came back to him. The chain stretched and stretched. The beast had lurked indeed, and the beast at its hour had sprung. It had sprung in that twilight of the cold April, when, pale, ill, wasted, but all beautiful, and perhaps even then recoverable, she had risen from her chair to stand before him and let him imaginably guess. It had sprung as he didn't guess. It had sprung as she hopelessly turned from him, and the mark, by the time he left her, had fallen where it was to fall. He had justified his fear and achieved his fate. He had failed with the last exactitude of all he was to fail of. And a moan now rose to his lips as he remembered she had prayed he mightn't know. This horror of waking, this was knowledge, knowledge under the breath of which the very tears in his eyes seemed to freeze. Through them, nonetheless, he tried to fix it and hold it. He kept it there before him so that he might feel the pain. That, at least, belated and bitter, had something of the taste of life. But the bitterness suddenly sickened him, and it was as if, horribly, he saw in the truth, in the cruelty of his image, what had been appointed and done. He saw the jungle of his life, and saw the lurking beast. Then, while he looked, perceived it, as by a stir of the air, rise huge and hideous for the leap that was to settle him. His eyes darkened, it was close, and instinctively turning in his hallucination to avoid it, he flung himself face down on the tomb. Oh, there we go. The end. That's it. The awfulness of this is extraordinary. He's waited his whole life. Let me go back to my humble little story of myself and my five-year plan. What was I gaining with that? I had this special fate for myself. I carved out a niche for myself in that town. I was special. I was different. I was the one with a five-year plan. I even had an obsessed little fellow who was impressed by it, and that felt good. It felt affirmative, and meanwhile, everyone around me was falling in love and falling out of love and getting married young, sometimes disastrously, sometimes as the start to a lifelong relationship, full of heart and warmth and children and ups and downs. That five-year plan, which I thought might set me apart, and which did set me apart, also snuffed out a lot of my life. Luckily, it was only five years, and I wasn't that committed to it. In fact, within that five years, I discovered literature and all of its glories, and Proust in particular made me realize, my goodness, someday I'm going to look back on these years when I'm old and decrepit and facing the end of my days, and I'll wish I had memories to fill them. I'll want to have experienced things, including passionate relationships, even if they drag me down, even if they're full of pain as well as pleasure. I will want to have lived. Add Henry James to this list, and that's what this story is. A man turning 60 writes about a character who has gotten in his own way. He didn't commit. He didn't feel. He didn't set himself 
or he set himself apart, but then he was apart. He didn't feel all that there was to feel. And there was one woman in particular, May Bartram in the story, who knew him better than anyone, who was right there with him, who saw that this was the problem, not just a problem for her, who loved him, but a problem for him, who was not allowing himself to love. He was living a half-life, suspended, dreaming of some great and special fate, and bringing that great and special fate about. His beast was there. His beast was not living. He flings himself onto the tomb as a desperate way to reclaim it. We know what he'll get. Not the love, not the warmth of her arms, not any memories of being as connected to her as he might have been had he let himself go, let himself give in, let himself succumb, let himself be his most passionate and devoted self. Let himself give in and let himself give. He was not a giver. He was not a taker either. He was numb. And now he wouldn't know that warmth of giving and taking. He would be on the cold, hard ground, face down on a tomb. Can you imagine a colder or lonelier or more desperate place to be? James put John Marcher in that place. James maybe felt like that was the right place for John Marcher to be. Now, I told you I had one more twist for you, right? Well, here we go. James had this connection, as we've discussed, with Constance Fenimore Wilson. She was a writer who won him over. She arrived in Europe to meet him. She was herself a successful and popular writer, insightful, not as respected as James, perhaps, but in his league, a colleague, certainly. They became friends, and then something closer than that. They wrote to each other nearly every day. They spent time together, and they even took up rooms in the same building on multiple occasions. James knew how much he meant to her, and yet he kept her apart, and maybe his keeping her at a distance fueled her depression, and later in life, he didn't know what to make of that exactly. It had been convenient for him. His connection to her, his attitude toward her had been clean, clinical. It had kept him from being tangled up in her moods, and when she fell, it kept him from falling with her. It had seemed at the time as if it were the most practical thing for him to do. He was a novelist. His job was to observe, to be attached, to look within. And the last thing he needed was to be dragged into someone else's downward spirals. But when he came to write The Beast in the Jungle, he had changed his mind. We just heard the result. Marcher, at least, would seem to be glad to have been in someone else's spirals, not letting himself be part of May Bartram's world, not giving himself over to her, not letting himself love her, is the great catastrophe he's been waiting for all his life, he realizes. He should have. He's missed his chance. Now he's face down on a grave, wrecked and ruined by the thought of what he missed. How did he get there? How did James 
arrive at this place where he put him there. What put this in James's mind? Well, one of the key aspects of the story to me is that John Marcher comes to believe that May Bartram has seen something he hasn't. It's not just that May has been waiting for his fate, it's that she's seen his fate. And so we turn to Henry and Constance to see, well, what if she knew? What if she saw that Henry's inability to commit to her was not just a sorrow for her, an unrequited passion she had, but something that he himself would regret? What if she saw James better than he saw himself? And what if he came to believe that that was the case? And this is where we find a haunting piece of biographical information. Remember when I told you that James arrived in Venice to look through her papers after she had died to help take care of everything, to put things in order. And scholars suspect that while he was there doing that, he burned a bunch of those papers. His letters to her, for example. And there's that great image of him taking her dresses out to a canal and trying to submerge them all, but they float back to the surface. Well, let's focus on her papers. She would have his letters to her, of course, and maybe he burned those, but she would also have her private writings, the things she was working on, notes she was taking for her future fiction. And among this mountain of paper, there was this, an outline, an idea for a story. Quote, a man spending his life looking for and waiting for his splendid moment, but the moment never comes. End quote. It's the beast in the jungle, in one sentence. It's the spark of the idea, not in the text, but in the text plus the context. The text tells us about the waiting and the moment not arriving. The context is that James is finding this note written by his friend, his friend who has died, his friend who knew him well, maybe better than anyone else ever had, maybe better than he himself had known himself. Maybe reading that phrase made him realize that Wilson was inspired by him, not by him as a great writer, not by him as the love she never had, not by him as the great man she felt lucky to know. Maybe he realized that she saw that he was not superior to her, that he was failing to live. The best course his life could have taken was to let himself fall in love with Constance to be there when she needed him to let their relationship go deeper, to commit And by the time he realized that, it was too late. She was the one who died, but he was the one who had not lived. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. Boy, oh boy, Henry James, Mr. James. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. We might have to read some more, James. It's so good and brings up so much that's good about literature and life. We'll take a break for a little while, though. Speaking of which, 
Good life, I mean, not taking a break. Speaking of which, I hope you're living a good life, dear listener. Thanks to all of you who emailed to check in on me. I'm doing much better. Thank you. And I will be back with some shorter episodes soon with a lighter touch, I promise. This is grueling stuff. This Henry James with his beasts and their heavy, ticking breath cuts to the bone. But sometimes to get to the diamonds, we have to go down, deep down, like miners descending into the earth, traveling down past a lot of coal into the heat and pressure. Or that's at its greatest. Inside that heat and pressure is where grown men fling themselves face down on tombs. And it's not sentimental. It feels earned. It feels like a a precious gem. For those of us who love this kind of stuff, it feels good to be on that mission. And it feels good, maybe even a little better, to have emerged from it. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening. And we'll see you next time.